Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. And remember, if you want to listen live, download the iHeartRadio app, download the TuneIn app, and just search for Fantasy Sports Radio Network, and you can listen to this program live. Also, if you want to watch the video of this podcast, check us out on YouTube, on Twitch, or on Periscope, and type in, you guessed it, Fantasy Sports Network. You'll find us there. Enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to Going for the Green on the Fantasy Sports Network. Brought to you by DailyRoto.com. Make sure to rate, review us on iTunes if you're listening to this podcast. It's also on Audio Boom And check out DailyRoto.com slash premium for all of our golf packages. You know, the U.S. opens next week, Drewby. So people are going to want to have projections and the finished probabilities. And hey, legalized sports betting on the way. Delaware, the first legalized sports bet was placed. So if you're interested in bets, we have some cool tools for that Uh I already started talking to you, Drewby, without introducing you, but I do have Colin Drew, who I will refer to informally as Drewby on this show with us, also from DailyRoto.com. I'm Mike Leone, and we've got this week the FedEx St. Jude Classic. But before we dive into that, let's do a recap of the Memorial Invitational. It was a pretty fun week for you know real golf and for Daily Roto community and our Slack channel for fantasy golf because we had some sweats. And it came down to the end. Patrick Cantlay was a guy that we were very high on from a value perspective. And him not ending up with the lead and ending up collapsing a little bit there really hurt a lot of the chances. I know Drew had some big sweats there for a little while on Sunday until he bowed out of the the um, contention. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau ended up taking it down. And Philly Dilly, one of our users, did come in second in the dogleg for 50K. So the uh, Cantley meltdown didn't hurt him as much. His meltdown's a little tough. But um, Bryson Collin with a really, really good week. He's been playing phenomenally. He's had kind of a strange career trajectory where he was this amateur that people really liked, had a really good outing at the Masters and then turned pro and had a couple good outings. And then he just seemed to completely lose it. And over this past season, he's really played very well and much more consistently. We've seen some high-end finishes from him. And it's sort of a polarizing figure because he's very into the science and the math and the golf stuff and can kind of turn people off in some ways. And is also all his irons, I believe, are the same length, so he plays a bit differently. So... Uh, I guess talk to us a little bit about Bryson's win, both in terms of like real golf and his career and how you looked at whether or not to play Bryson in DFS last week. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's almost like the post-hype sleeper season out of him just because he was so tattered when he came up and, um, you know, he had had that master's performance as an amateur. And then when he came up, the results, you know, weren't there consistently. And so it kind of died down a little bit. But he was one of the guys that I think the DFS community in general jumped back on pretty quickly because at multiple points this season, the strokes gained TD Green were really through the roof. And that's something that you know, a lot of people like to target um, more consistently with the the model building and things that they're looking for. And, I, you know, we've talked about it on the pod a few times. I thought one of the most telling things with him was that uh, it seemed like he was a guy that had shown sort of that outlier upside in multiple of the different skill sets. And so it was somebody that, uh, you know, had shown the upside in approach and putting off the tee and around the green. And so not necessarily somebody that's going to be a one trick pony as far as the course that they're tied down to. Um, I know it was a guy that the data golf probability model had been consistently warming up to as the year progressed. Uh, for me, I did not play him in DFS. Talked about it, the decision a little bit in the pro tip. Um, I try to gain leverage on the field where I can, especially in large field tournaments. And uh, he was projected to be heavily owned. And so it was a guy that I ended up fading outright along with, uh, I think, Grillo, Kevin Na, a couple others. Obviously, the Bryson fade didn't work out there. But I don't think it was necessarily a flawed process. Um, 
you know, if you're listening to this and you did play Bryson, uh, chances are you probably didn't win a GPP anyways and probably didn't make a ton of money. Obviously, the guys that did win had to have him, and so um, awesome for them. Uh, definitely was good to have Philly Dilly back kind of up there on the leaderboard. Um, guy that is pretty active in Slack, had been away on vacation for a couple weeks, got married, so nice uh, nice prize pool he can split with his new wife and uh, <laughs> does a lot of stuff for us. The, the infamous wall of text is always one of the things that you look forward to at the start of the week as well. Yeah, and going back to that decision whether to fade Bryson, play Bryson, I think guys like him, the data golf model that powers our projections, has difficulty with just because you've got some extreme results in terms of really low end, and then he started to turn on in the high end. You know, recently he's had some good high end finishes, and we're looking at long term skill so much that that's going to get weighted down by those performances that are still within his one-year, two-year profile that weren't very good. So it's someone that we can see this happening and understand with context given the skills that he's shown, you know, the hype that he had, uh, the raw talent that, okay, he's probably better than our model thinks. But at the same time, generally, whenever that happens with somebody, it's usually someone who's played really, really well or kind of an outlier. So that outlier always is going to catch the attention of the field. So what happens is, yes, we know our model's low on them, but it's prob- the field's probably too high on that player. So you end up in this weird situation where I, I agree with you, where I think like a fade more times than not is merited on these type of players, even though we know we're probably a little bit light on them, if that yeah. makes sense. And and then the other thing is just the young younger golfers in general. Bryson, maybe not quite so much, um, just because he does have a little bit of data, but there is sort of this progression that you expect out of golfers as they move through their career is in show improvements with age until you hit a certain point and it starts to fall off a little bit. And so uh, the model will kind of solve for some of that stuff, but it'll be maybe a little bit slower on the younger guys and maybe a little bit uh, hold on to the old guys a little bit longer, but it's all kind of still within a reasonable spectrum. And, um, in general, though, it was a good week. It was one of the, it was funny, like sweating in Slack because like everyone was kind of on a couple of the same core guys, but then everything else, anytime like a birdie or bogey happened, it was just like money transferring from one pocket <laughs> to the other. So Drew came out on the, the short end this week, but he's, he's come out on the, the high end plenty of times in his career. So it was nice. Yeah. I think Jordan Spieth was definitely the biggest miss, um, was popular in DFS circles, was really popular with us. I played, plenty of speed in my lineups um the t to green game kind of fell off for him which had been the one thing that was super consistent he did okay putting um but the t to green game wasn't there and so that was um yeah that was unexpected but i i guess it was bound to happen at at some point um uh, just because he hadn't been clicking it will be really interesting to see what happens at the U.S. Open, both in terms of his pricing and his general popularity? Yeah, I feel like I can already foresee myself ending up with a lot of Jordan Spieth. He's going to be priced down, but he's not going to be popular at the same time. That's kind of my early prediction, and it's really going to put you in a spot of, you know, how much do you worry about the recent form? And it's going to be interesting. And, you know, Tiger had a super good Weak T to green, but didn't putt that well. So that was a little bit frustrating. He's kind of an interesting case with our model. We talked about guys that it has a tough time with. And when he first started being back, you know, we were a little bit shy on him and the market was like so high on him. And it's kind of funny to see that the market seems to have, you know, not, not turned on him by any means, but cooled off a little bit while at the same time, our model actually likes him more and more as we get more data that shows, yeah, he really is playing pretty good. So yeah, that's an interesting dynamic and I, I think it'll be interesting for the u.s open as well you know before we do get into this field um obviously u.s open coming up is going to be a big event uh best man for my wedding was actually there over the weekend and got to play the course twice got to see the trophy there that was all set up all the, the stands and everything were up there it was pretty cool said the run the rough is already two and a half inches high and the fescue is already at his knees and um he he was pretty happy to get out of there alive. Obviously not a professional golfer by any means, but it should be a good event. And then there are obviously some notable withdrawals this week due to the U.S. Open qualifying that happened. People who got into the field that have pulled out of this event. So tons of names, both since DK posted pricing as well as, you know, before they posted pricing that are either out or in the field. And then who knows what else is to come. 
Yeah, uh, Adam Scott, Ali Schneider, Johns, Keegan Bradley, Russell Knox, Patrick Rogers. These are guys that are all out. Handful of guys in for them, obviously, but nobody that I can see that's really of note. Um, before the DK pricing was out, you also had like Jamie Love, Mark, and some other guys bow out. The other interesting conversation, somewhat along those same lines, are are there questions in terms of motivation of the guys, the higher end golfers who are obviously playing in the U S open next week, but still playing this week. So you've got guys like Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, Phil Berger, Stenson, Finau, Chapel, you know, Glover, Snyder, Molnax, you know, all of these guys that are in the field and in the U S open already, you know, what's their motivation. So uh, do you have concerns with playing these type of players? It feels like, it's one of those things that gets overblown, but at the same time, that doesn't mean it's non-existent. Yeah, and I think it's existent in the fact that DJ withdrew a couple of years ago because he came out, fired a bad front nine. I think he was like six over or something. Uh, and then he decided to pull the plug, said he was sick, and was at the U.S. Open the next day practicing. So <laughs> I like that type of thing could happen where, you know, they're not here hoping to play nine holes and withdraw, but it's just the risk, like, if they make their bogeys early, are they just going to decide to pull the plug on it, pull the eject cord, or are they going to grind it out, try to make the cut, and then grind on the weekend for like a 50th place finish? The only I would never basically like Stenson and above. You might think about that. Like a, I don't know if I'll make any adjustments, but you might think about it a tiny bit. It's at least like more viable for that caliber golfer who's made millions in their career and has a chance to contend next week than it is maybe somebody who's not quite as high profile, hasn't been on tour as long, um, needs the money. I know like with Brooks Kepka, for example, that he missed some time in tournaments earlier this year due to his injury. And so uh, he doesn't necessarily need the money, but he definitely wants the FedEx points and, you know, the money and the like OWGR ranking points and all that kind of stuff that goes into future qualifications and, um, because he missed so much time that, you know, Ryder Cup and things like that are all sort of in play. And uh, I think there's, you know, not really a question with me uh, that, you know, someone like him probably is a little bit more motivated um, maybe than like a DJ. But in the end, I don't think it's going to impact my decision to roster guys. If anything, it would maybe just like affect the ownership cap that I might put on them or something like that, not going all in on an individual player. All right, let's get into the course this week. It's played at TPC Southwind in Memphis. It's a par 70 course, 7,244 yards. It's pretty long when you adjust it, you know, do the par adjusted distance. It's ninth in par adjusted distance. It's 14th in fairway width. So add it all together, and it is a somewhat challenging course, 15th most challenging on tour relative to par. So, Colin, what are you seeing with this course that you might focus on a bit more than usual. And I'll preface that with saying anyone that's listened to us before knows like our primary concern is just trying to figure out how good the golfers are. It sounds super simplistic, but we found that's the best approach. And we do that through long-term form, uh, recent form, and then maybe we layer in a little bit of course fit on top of that to help find, you know, tiebreakers, tournament type plays that could go under the radar, just things might be happening there that aren't as obvious in the pure data. Yeah, and I think the other thing I in the back of my mind, you're like, it's one of the more upper third as far as more challenging courses. But then you look at the field this week and you're like, oh, maybe the field is just always trash. So that's why it's challenging. I uh, did hear on you know Pat Mayo's show, shout out to Pat, that it does have the most water balls on tour. And so I didn't know that stat. That was a pretty interesting one. And that could explain a little bit of the difficulty if you're taking some penalty strokes definitely in a course that favors approach slightly compared to the traditional event. But again, like we said, we're talking about 40% of strokes gained on approach versus a tour average of 35% and 30% of strokes gained putting versus a tour average of 35%. So really subtle changes there, just shifting a little bit of the putting uh, to the strokes gained approach as far as how it drives the variation in scores amongst the golfers. And I'm sure the water and the penalty strokes that, come along with a bad shot there or playing into that a little bit. So um, slight favor to approach, but really subtle. And it's not something that, you know, necessarily takes the driver completely out of someone's hands. And um, I, I think in general with how shallow and weak the field is, um, I probably won't be grasping too much onto 
course fit just because uh, it's hard enough to, to find golfers you want to play. Yeah, that's one of those things that it seems to matter more when the edges aren't as wide in terms of golfer skill gap, and it's just tougher to identify that. That's when you might lean on it a bit more. But you know, let's look at a little bit of course history, given you know what you said, and we you know, we do have a weaker field here, and that's going to push as you'll see when we get into our top guys some a lot of value to the expensive golfers and a couple of the expensive golfers this week do have pretty good course history and DJ and Phil Mickelson DJ of course had that withdrawal that you referenced Drewby but he's also won here and had two other top 10 finishes and other top 25 Phil just seems to be littering you know near the top 10 doesn't have an outright win here guy that does have an outright win here is Daniel Burry who's actually won twice yeah back to back don't see that very often um We'll get into the the price range stuff, but I mean it's it's hard to just it would be take a really really low like like sub five percent ownership for me to want to get on board with him with how he's been playing this year in that price tag. But yeah, won the event twice, good for him. Um, I think Ben Crane's another guy that one of the hardest things for me that this week is going to be the ownership projections, just because it is a weak field and sometimes I I mean you want to find stuff to to talk about and sometimes that leads people to course history and that leads them to touting Ben Crane. Uh, who has only missed one cut and has won this event in the past nine or so tries. Um, and I just, I, I, it's going to be like, like are 20% of people really going to own Ben Crane? I'm sure that's what my model will tell me the ownership projection is because it will influence the Vegas odds and it will influence what people talk about, which will drive the conversation. But when they actually come down to it, are they all going to click his name? Because uh, I don't think anybody's rostered him this year. So that will be a, my struggle this week. Could be one of the weeks with a little bit of a lower R squared as far as ownership projections. But yeah, I mean, Phil, DJ, Kepka, they all have the, the top three course history index as far as strokes gained here. So um, seems like a week where it's going to be hard to avoid uh, the top names altogether. And um, it's just a question of mixing and matching and how you want to approach the, the other sections. I think that depending if you kind of try to optimize based on the odds of getting all six six through the cut, you might start with someone like Henrik Stenson. Um, and if you want to, to kind of load up on projected fantasy points and maybe starting with someone like DJ. Drew, I liked how you tempered expectations on the ownership projections this week. That was an absolute veteran pro move there. Set the bar low, Mike. Got to set the bar low. 0.7. I, you know, squared. after that Masters performance, people are going to be clamoring for these U.S. Open ownership projections. I think They'll at the Masters, there was like two guys you were off on and everybody else. It was just, it was, I thought when I first saw, I think Philly Dilly put it together, actually, the ownership percentages, the actuals versus your projected. And like, I thought there was a mistake at first. They were so close so i'll give you you some some props there but you know you can't be a one-hit wonder you gotta go out and prove it at the u.s open yeah. too they're always good when it's it's like a data thing right like anything the more data you have to feed a model the better and more accurate it is and for the majors you always get a lot of data so I always feel pretty comfortable about those um and you get kind of efficient uh betting odds and things like that or more efficient betting odds than you might typically at another event and you always feel worse when it's just guys are are just kind of clinging to the same thing to talk about i know like we talk about course history every week because it's something that people like to think about they like to hear but it's not something that really drives our decision making a lot if anything it drives the ownership and maybe a decision to fade but you kind of gotta like <laughs> you gotta talk about it because people like to hear about it and they do want to know who has a good course history so all that stuff is all influential in the ownership um so the top end of the field should we get into it yeah, we can get the top in the field. Just a real quick note, you know, running some early optimals in terms of like our top 20 finish model, our fantasy model, our make cut probabilities, different ways to look at things. And the consensus is generally is one 10K plus golfer, one mid-tier golfer, and then just going in that low 7Ks-ish range, maybe the mid-7Ks and rounding out there. And I think that's because it's a weak field, you can, you want a high-end golfer that's going to separate himself from this field and that gap's larger and then you don't feel as bad taking some of those cheaper golfers on the back end because you're not there's not a whole ton of opportunity cost where some weeks you know if the mid-tier is absolutely loaded with values there is a lot of opportunity cost so which of those high-end golfers should you play we've got dj at 11.7 brooks at 11.1 mickelson at 10.6 stenson at 10.4 and berger 
at $10,000. So DJ tournament favorite, we could see slightly lower ownership here than some of the other guys just because he's so expensive. Um, but he does deserve to be priced up there. He's actually our top value by a decent margin in our fantasy model. Yeah. And I, I think the, the lower is maybe lower to the perception or lower to what he should be, um, in this field. Definitely a dominant favorite, just hard to fit in. And, and the, the lack of value in the cheaper ranges is also one of the things that drives that. And so, I mean, he's going to be double digit owned. I, I, think he's probably going to come in close to 20%, but I think in other spots where he's um, the lead dog and he was, you know, fresh off a win or a second place finish or something, he was, you know, coming at 30% ownership. So maybe a little bit lower than um, he has been. He was only 11 or 12% owned last week and it was different in different formats, obviously, but um, I don't know. People seem sour on him generally just because the, the victories haven't been there, but still playing really well and still putting up results. Uh, and I think he's a guy that kind of you, you want to have in the mix that the price tag is the only thing that makes it a little bit more, uh, more uncomfortable to roster him. It's definitely easier and safer to slot in Stenson. And then as we move down the pricing, we get Brooks Kepka, who's put together six plus strokes gained T to green over his last two. So, the uh, injury data could be depressing some of the results before that. So we'll see what he's able to do, but he does need to put together some good results. As you had mentioned, the motivational standpoint for FedEx points, you know, for the Ryder Cup, things like that. Mickelson was a disaster last week, but he's sort of the epitome of when we say DK score, a guy who's going to put together a lot of birdies, but you never know. Uh, when you could, he could go bad. I think it was the opening round. He was at minus four, ended up plus two. And then, uh, it just seemed like he was up and down most of the week. Yeah. And I think, um, between kind of, so, so Brooks, I mean, I'd rather find the money to get to DJ than to play Brooks, but I'd rather find the money to get to Brooks and play Phil, um, as if Brooks is going to be, lower owned or a similar ownership percent. That's one of the things I'm kind of, it's too early in the week to really have a good feel on it. But um, I mean, Stenson to me is just, is the smash play of this tier uh, because you do get the, you know, kind of dominant favorite in the projections or dominant number two in the projections. Um, and I'd rather play a chalky Stenson than I would play a chalky Phil because people do have to play, you know, or not have to, but most people are going to play one of these golfers and, um, I think they're, they all still kind of rate as a better play than Daniel Berger, who seems like off of those wins, he's at least $1,000 overpriced. Uh, probably only interested in Berger if, I don't know, he was 5% owned or something like that, which seems like it's hard to be the case, but um, who knows? So I think that's kind of where I'm at right now is uh, Stenson, Brooks, DJ, Phil, uh, with the DJ and Stenson being the guys that, I am most keen on early this week. Yeah, and then as we drop to the 9 to 10K range, it gets filtered out a bit here because you did have Adam Scott, Keegan Bradley withdraw. You've got Tony Finau, uh, who is the top play of this group. But with Scott out, with Keegan out, people are going to be drawn to his name quite a bit, and you could get really hefty ownership. So do like this play as far as a value in a vacuum. Finau, of course, you know, you always hear me say he's a good play because he's my favorite golfer. I have some bias there, but early ownership projections, again, very early in the week, but looks like of the non-top guys, he could be one of the highest owned, if not the highest owned, you know, non-expensive golfer on the week. And this tier isn't that great. It's because after Finau, you've got Horschel, who just seems really overpriced at 9700 Charles, who's pretty volatile. And then Ben Ahn, who I like. Uh, again, one of my standard favorites here. But that's a pretty big price bump up to 9200 So I think this is a tier that I think you can get away from pretty easily in cash games. Finau, a little bit better playing cash games, though, because the ownership doesn't matter as much. Yeah, I think um, especially with Scott and Keegan out of the range, there's only a couple names to choose from, and Billy Horschel is overpriced, and I think that's going to be fairly apparent. So that'll leave kind of now Schwartzel on, and 
I, I still think like you can still play Tony if he's 20% and Ons 10%. I still think that Tony's probably a, a comparable play um, at that discrepancy. But if Tony hits 30%, then it starts to get to a point where maybe you consider dodging the range entirely. I know we always kind of talk about the the fades only really make sense if there are pivots and the the same price pivots as now aren't great right now. And so you're kind of looking at pivoting outside of the range if that's the direction you're going to go or going with on. Um, I think most likely I'll end up um, with a, a little bit of finale. I guess you could, in theory, start your teams there if, if you really felt like the motivation was going to be lacking on some of the top players. But when you look at the course history, it doesn't seem like that's been the case historically outside of that one withdraw. So um, it, in general, it's not a really inspiring range to choose from. And I think that's going to be also another one of the reasons that, you know, that kind of optimal way of, of looking at things is to hit up one in the top tier, then maybe dip to the um, either for now or the eight to nine K range and then round out in the seven Ks. Yeah. If you do start with Stenson, then it's a bit easier to play Finau. I think if you're going to do that though, in a tournament, you certainly want to make sure that you're going to be unique elsewhere. Cause I could see that being a popular start since they go together pretty well. It's going to be, really hard to play like DJ and Stunson, for example. Uh, so we dip down though into the eight to nine K range and we get one of the data golf favorites and he's actually done really well for us this season. He just qualified for the U S open. That's our old man, Steve Stricker, who just keeps grinding on. And this is a guy that I think sometimes goes overlooked because it's not a sexy name by any means. And he doesn't play a ton of events, but when he's playing and he's playing in some events with decent fields, he's putting up pretty good finishes. You know, six events this season, he made the cut in five of them. He's got a T31, 26, 12, 23, 32. Those are pretty strong finishes. Now you get him in a weak field and you do hope to get, you know, into the top 15 end of those finishes, not just the top 30, but because of the weakness of the field, you can see that our finish probability model is really high on him in terms of top 10 probability we have him you know around where you're getting Mickelson and Finau and then you start to see a pretty decent drop off in all the golfers yeah and I think one of the things I was digging into the underlying stats for Stricker and it's actually not his putter that's been getting it done which has been frustrating you know for us when we were betting him to to t20 um kind of along this along this little run yeah Again, 32, 32, 23, 26, 31, and that most of those he was within the, the top 20 for, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a tilt fest on the, the betting side of things. And now I feel like, I feel like the betting market's kind of caught up a little bit, although he's in this uh, weak field, and so we're probably not betting him this week, and he'll end up with a, a decent finish, and, It'll just drive the tail even more. But he's kind of, it's interesting just to see him right there next to Neiman, who obviously had that really strong finish last week because you kind of have the two different golfers who are uh, at different ends of their careers uh, right now. And I know that it was something Drew and I talked about going into last event was um, whether or not it made sense to have a little bit of a manual adjustment on Neiman. And uh, really obviously hit a ceiling with the finish that he had there as far as his range of outcomes. But it is one of those blind spots with guys um, like him who are highly ranked in the world amateur golf rankings, um, kind of elite prospects, and then step up to the tour for the first time and have low samples of data. Um, but it's not like we had no data on him. And so I think it seems like a, uh, if his you know finish last week draws some extra ownership that um, maybe a guy that the – Projections should be adjusted up on, but it's still easy to stay away from because the price has come up substantially and the ownership will come up as well. Yeah, that's basically the pricing conversation we had where, yeah, we're, we're weak, but the market's going to overreact so much more that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, and yeah, he's had some, he's had three top tens in six events. He's also had three missed cuts. So a lot of volatility there for Neiman. Uh, looking elsewhere in this eight to nine K range, you know, Chris Kirk might be someone that you sprinkle. He's got higher mid cut odds than someone like JB Holmes, for example, who's a higher upside play. Someone we're used to taking that risk with when he's sub eight K, but nature of the field and eight K price tag isn't too bad on him. Uh, any interest here or other guys in this range? 
Yeah, I mean, like Russell Knox uh, withdrew, friend of the podcast, fantasy golf fan, uh, was really, really upset because he loves betting Russell Knox uh, fruitlessly, but he withdrew, so he's another name that's out of this range and takes away some of the, the playable players, and that congests the ownership. So Peter Uline and Appy Barnrat, who is a big favorite of a few members of the Daily Roto Slack channel. See those? Uh, they're going to draw ownership this week, 20% owned uh, right now for you know, the average of kind of Uline, Appy Barnrat, and Luke List, who rates as a really strong play. I think uh, we kind of have List and Howell as the top plays of this range alongside of Stricker, and I certainly agree with those. Um, question is just going to be how kind of the ownership shakes out between them and um, if there are any available pivots. Uh, I, I definitely am aligned with Data Golf's model. The only thing is going to be the ownership, and, and that's unfortunately that's one of the things that um, – seems to be common this week as we go through the ranges. It's kind of nice on the weeks where you agree with the probabilities, you disagree with the market, and therefore you get some nice natural leverage. It's always tougher when you have to fade good golfers or you have to you know, try to reconcile fading good golfers just because of the really high ownership. And I think that reconciliation is one that I'm going to have to do by the time Wednesday night rolls around with Luke List. Yeah, the... Early look for me, for, you know, not specific to list, but just from a more macro standpoint, is it doesn't seem like you want to make direct pivots off a lot of guys and just take a much worse golfer just because he's in the similar price range and that's the best alternative you can find there. It seems more like, you know, let's build a little bit differently than other people are going to build. And then you're still taking the guys that you like. You're just attacking at different price ranges. And I think when you look into sub 8K range, if you can stay here, some more you really get lower ownership projections on all of the cheap golfers this week just because there's more options to pick from and there's less clear skill gaps at least to the market i think you know someone right away that catches my eye is kevin chapel at 7800 who are projecting at sub 10 percent ownership i think like I'd rather go there, save some money, than play Luke List for double or even possibly triple the ownership. So there are some other good guys in this uh, range. Shane Lowry is someone who's popping in most of the optimals that we look at. Another guy that's not carrying a whole lot of publicity, at least so far early in the week. Yeah, and they're all kind of thin lines um, with the optimals there as you kind of look at that $7,600 range that I think has a few options between Ches Reby, um, Lucas Glover, Sneds, and then Shane Lowry. And so um, all of those are within a couple percentage points as far as their top 20 odds. I think as far as maximizing your fantasy points, your expectation, you're looking at like pretty thin lines there. So you can kind of just go with your favorite play or, or try to get some ownership leverage. It seems like Ches Reby will probably be the most popular of that kind of uh, foursome. Uh, other guys that we had talked about earlier, but just as a reminder, if you're kind of going through the price tiers along with us, Ollie withdrew from this event. Patrick Rogers withdrew from this event, so they're no longer there. But from a macro perspective, you're definitely right that, you know, Chapel, Kevin Tway, like th- those are names that um, are going to carry lower ownership this week. And if you want to maybe try to grab two of the more expensive guys, um, or build out balanced and avoid the kind of eight and nine K range that you can get grab maybe a couple names in this high seven range that are going to be interesting tournament flyers that in a week field do have upside. And because there are so many golfers in this range, um, they're at least going to keep the ownership in check somewhat. So I think that's kind of where things are at on the, you know, the upper end of the seven K range, uh, one of the guys that is projecting uh, okay in the fantasy model and probability model, but we actually uh, found a really good tournament matchup with is um, Brian Gay. And so I think that's one of the other things that probably won't end up having him in DFS, but I know we just um, found a pretty nice edge in a head-to-head matchup um, with the data golf betting tools against Thornberry. Yeah, using those betting tools. In the conversation we had a couple weeks ago, Drewby, about you know, around legalized sports betting that sometimes if you are betting, you can find avenues to 
use players in in the best spots where the the upside risk makes the most sense and gay if you can get a really good line on him in a tournament matchup betting him um then you don't take that risk in dfs where you don't like the ownership overall projection combination makes a lot of sense and as we move through the 7k range in the lower 7k range austin cook is someone i find myself interested in cook is I think like a more volatile score. So you, if he is making the cut, you're generally compiling DraftKings points for him. And in this field, we do have him 25th in terms of two-year adjusted strokes gained, and that's you know based on his finishes relative to the field and whatnot. So to get a guy that's within the top 30 overall golfer skill-wise and has a bit of DK scoring upside at a low tag. Uh, intrigues me and the ownership likely won't be there of course anybody in the low 7k range i don't think there's going to be much mega chalk here yeah i don't i mean it seems like it's possible that uh ben crane will be mega chalk kind of in that mid-range um i I made a pretty big manual adjustment downwards now in v1 the projections just because i it's hard to stomach it but like people have so little to lean on and are so like uncomfortable playing these guys that it's you kind of are going to gravitate to one thing and that one thing could be course history which could lead people to ben crane that would be a fairly easy fade for me in dfs like the finale one and luke list like those those are tough ones those are you know really tough ones but there's probably like ben crane we don't have projected as a bad play but there's probably 15 20 guys that are comparable and uh, i don't really have any issues leaving him completely out of the mix uh scott piercy kind of broken record about scott piercy Looks really good in strokes Approach. game trends. His putter is just total trash. Good uh, good scramble player for your fantasy golf lineups. We've got a big scramble coming up next week. We'll talk about that at the end, though. The Daily Roto internal scramble. No Scott um, Piercy's in our group, though. Just No, just no definitely of, uh, not Bodos. any Scott Piercy's in our group. Um, I do think this is a week, though, that you can get away with more low 7Ks and even dipping into the sub 7K golfers than on other weeks just because of the lack of depth of this field that taking these risks, um, there's more potential reward than there usually is. And of course, simultaneously, it's allowing you to get access to the golfers that we know are really good at the very high end. As far as betting, I think something similar happens with the T20 odds, we often talk about taking some long shots in T20 odds. This week in particular, a lot of guys pop. And I think it's because maybe in terms of their ranking in the field, it might be pretty low. But the gap between like the 50th golfer and the 100th golfer, for example, um, might not be as wide as it would be on a normal week. So their chances of sneaking into top 20 and getting that type of performance is higher than the market indicates. So we do have a handful of long shot T20 bets. I know Will McKenzie is one of the ones that pops the most for us, not someone to look at in DFS. If you're looking at guys in DFS sub 7K, uh, Stuart Sink is sort of like the poor man, Steve Stricker. Maybe that's just me being ageist and, I just think of old guys and I lump them together. But to me, he's the poor man, Steve Stricker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's not as old as Stricker. And he hits the ball a little further, but uh, he's definitely one of the, the guys that the data golf models are fond of. Really solid probabilities to make the cut. He's only 45? Oh, my God. Yeah, six, 64% odds to make the cut, I think. So, um, I, I mean, he's definitely a good good play down there especially in this field i feel like i've played him at that price and in better fields uh sometimes it hasn't worked out but it's kind of beside the point like john ha is another guy that um is popping out a little bit so for the most part like we aren't usually able to get guys with above 15 percent odds to t20 uh in this range and so that's that's kind of the arbitrary threshold that i've been looking at and you kind of have a few of those options uh i know that one of the other guys that um been using a little bit in the showdown slates that's a good dk score if he does make the cut but is certainly volatile as brandon harkins but you also have names like david lingworth matt jones that are a little bit more comfortable for people to use uh, abraham answer who i think a lot of people used in the corrales event had a weak field and so um yeah i mean i think it is one of the weeks where there's not as much of a clear difference as far as maybe the the mid $7,400 range in the high $6,000 range as there is other weeks and kind of talking through it on the podcast I was telling you 
before I wasn't really sure like what to to play this week as far as the tournaments, but um, it seems like you're kind of stuck in a zone where I almost want to either play one lineup or to play a hundred lineups just because um, there's not a ton separating. And so I could see trying to take an MME approach where uh, maybe you try to avoid a bunch of the, the chalky players in the um, mid range and then just, <laughs> just kind of build a portfolio of all of the players in the $7,000 range that look very similar, both in terms of their odds and their ownership, and just try to mix and match a bunch of different combos with a lot of the top-end golfers up top. Yeah, and just to continue to hammer home that point, after the top 20 golfers and made cut odds, you're looking at guys in the low 60 percentages, and there's like about 30 guys between like the low 60 percentage to make cut and the low 50s, you know, maybe even more than 30 guys. So a lot of guys, once you get past the top, again, the top 20 overall. So guys that you're considering for your last two spots, I mean, there's going to be a lot of volatility in terms of the made cut among those golfers. So that just adds to that type of strategy that you're yeah, referencing. And I, yeah. And I think that's also, I mean, We've got pretty grimy names most uh, most weeks, to be honest, but we're definitely been in some extra extra special names this week. Um, but I think it's just all a function of the field. And if you look at the leaderboards here previously, you have like the random, you know, Fabian Gomez type win. But even the top tens and top twenties beyond that, you kind of it's like a mix where you have such really strong golfers up top, but the the mid range and particularly the weak range, there's not as much really separating them in terms of long term talent and I think that's one of the things that the probabilities that the data golf guys do. Um, the best with is that it is incorporating not just the PGA Tour data, but also Web.com and European Tour. And so, uh, definitely excited to to sweat some DFS, but also sweat some of these uh, like twenty-seven or thirty-to-one odds to T20 guys. Yeah, like you said, we generally are betting some bad names, but the EV on these guys usually there's well, two. Like the funds up. Yeah, it's going pretty well, but like the EVs usually concentrate on two or three guys, and then we have a lot of sprinkles on the long shot odds. Whereas this week, it's kind of a steady stream of guys that you know our odds are recommending that we bat at, at decent levels rather than just two or three. It's like slowly cascading down, like ten to fifteen guys that have uses pretty good bets before it trails off. So. Uh, it should be fun uh, tracking those T20s. That's also always, you know, a fun hedge to your DFS play because it's generally guys that you're not going to play in DFS. So if it goes awry there, uh, when you've got the PGA Tour app, you've got some other guys to favorite and star and uh, follow. At least if you're like me, when I'm dead in DFS, I still, for whatever reason, hopelessly follow the leaderboard. <laughs> so at least that gives you some extra impetus to follow the leaderboard and not just kick yourself um let's talk about showdown a little bit i know the showdown slates have it seems like they're gaining in popularity i haven't been playing them much Callan, i know you've been playing them i know our slack chat seems to really really enjoy them i don't know if it's just a vocal minority or a ton of people are playing them but uh, it does feel like i know some people were upset when they moved away from weekend golf to the showdown slates but it feels like it's been a net success yeah, I don't know if it has or not. I know um, my GPP results in Week in Golf were pretty phenomenal. <laughs> they were probably unsustainable, but they were really good. And my showdown uh, GPP results have been trash. And especially for the round four, where really you're getting uh, the majority of the contests, or at least the bigger contests. Um, but the showdown cash was successful last week and still going to try to figure out the round four Format For those of you who haven't played um, DraftKings Showdown, and FanDuel does ha still have the traditional weekend golf as well, for which will be nice to play for the U.S. Open. Uh, but the DraftKings Showdown format for rounds one through rounds three, it plays similar to the old weekend golf, where it's more about the variation in birdies and bogeys, and generating birdies and birdie streaks is kind of the king to winning in the rounds one through rounds three showdown. And then the round four showdown is... Um, comprised not just of the birdies and bogeys but also the placement points and so that adds the strategy wrinkle for that um, one of the tools that i've been using for the round four is the um, data golf live prediction model in order to try to understand what the guys um, odds are to finish inside the top five the top 10 the top 20 etc um, and then from there you also have to try to layer in and create projections using birdie and bogey variants 
Uh, I think the hard thing has just been like you definitely can't make teams that completely avoid the top of the leaderboard just because you're banking place points and the chances that somebody is going to shoot like a 60 are, are really low. But it seems like it's um, the ownership also congregates there. And for the most part, the leaderboard's not going to remain entirely unchanged. And so uh, trying to solve for cash games, I think is pretty easy. You kind of just want to slam the top of the leaderboard for the most part. But for um, the tournaments, it's it's kind of like you've got to figure out how many of those top golfers you want to fit in and maybe create groups and things like that for MME. All right, so we've covered the St. Jude tournament here. Let's get into some fun DR stuff. We've got our kind of like internal getaway weekend with me, you, Logan Hitchcock, Andrew Dinkmeyer, and Ocean City, Maryland. Originally, we were trying to get to the U.S. Open um, next week, but just kind of waited long to make plans and had a uh, a bad Airbnb, Airbnb experience. So that went out the window. So we're headed to Ocean City, though, and we've got a four-man scramble with a lot of pride on the line, probably a side pot or two as well. It's me and you versus Logan and Drew. Where where do you put our chances at this one? I don't I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell. Like it sounds like Drew hasn't picked up a club since the last scramble, but I don't know. I like I haven't played with any anybody. It seems like Logan's probably the the best golfer of the group, but he's kind of trying to talk himself down a little bit. I feel like oh, he's the I'm, worst. What's that? He's the worst. He he. One sentence he's telling us how great and oh, yeah, how far the he hits the club. Himself down, but the best. Yeah. Golfer. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, the worst at talking himself down. Yeah, he's, and then I feel like I'm the clear number two, but I but I didn't play last summer um, very much at all, uh, just because I had some migraine stuff going on. Uh, but I I don't I don't know if Drew is going to listen to this on an off week or not. But I've been putting it in the practice, so I've been I've been going to the range <laughs> a good bit, uh, taking some nice long lunches, hitting some balls. And I'm feeling pretty good with the swing, at least as far as a scramble. Uh, definitely still some big misses, but I think I can. You know, we got to pick the course too, so we got a nice wide open links layout with the the wind and everything. I feel like we're probably going to be uh, plus EV, especially if we can uh, get get your your tee shots into play. Yeah, that that was a good course layout for me because I'm pretty erratic. My distance is decent. I'm I'm the volatile guy. I probably played more than everybody else combined um, recently, uh, but I didn't start golfing in terms of like golfing at all until like two or three years ago so i'm the guy who's played the most recently and probably the worst of the group so yeah it's, you it's might an be interesting able to, combination you might be able to make some bets in delaware on your way down on the u.s open and then cash them on your way back up oh, um, just I because i think i mean we're we're like an uh, we're like 30 minutes from delaware where we're going to be staying but i think we're like an hour and a half or two hours from the casino so it's a little bit of a trek for us but i think you might actually drive straight through it well we might have to to add that to the docket but yeah i'm i'm ready to go um i know a couple weeks ago we were asking like different type of golf games that we could play before Uh, unfortunately one of our guys couldn't come and it came down to four so it was just an easy scramble but uh, do you have favorite golf games on the course? I've been playing, I play with a group of guys on Fridays. We've been playing Wolf. Have you ever played Wolf? That game's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, Wolf's definitely good. Um, for the most part, we'll just play, like, uh, my friends are kind of similar to the group we're going out with, where there's a few of us who are kind of in the same um, same range, where we're, you know, anywhere from, like, a 12 to a you know 18 handicap and then there's a couple that are you know struggling to break 100 and so trying to do the best ball format um with handicaps is is usually the best if you kind of got a mixed group i think that the the wolf's definitely fun but it's still still tough when you got such a a wide skill set gap there um so i think yeah skins but i think the team you know when you're in a foursome uh, i think that getting a team team format and team rivalries is definitely the way to go yeah, Wolf actually with three people I found a lot of fun because that skill gap I feel like it doesn't matter quite as much. So the skill matters, but you can also play a bit more strategy. And as long as you're not like way, way worse than the other two guys, you can figure something out there as long as it's not like an egregious skill gap. So I found that's fun. Um, if you ever played Bingo Bingo Bongo, that's a good one if like you've got all sorts of skill levels and you just want to have a fun game. 
Yeah, I would say for me, like the most frustrating for, thing for me with golf right now is just that I was so much better when I was 16 than I am now. Like, I think I was down to like a six or seven handicap at my best. And that was probably when I was 16, 17. And, you know, now I'm like struggling. I don't know if I've broken 90 and like, well, I've definitely broken 90. I don't, I've definitely not broken 80 since graduating from college, probably, which is that's tough. Yeah, I've broken a hundred like once in my life. So, um, I do commiserate though with like being good at something when you're younger and then not being good at it. That's how it is for me in running. I ran a sub five minute mile in high school and like, I think I got, I think it was like a 1735 K and now, uh, I went and ran a mile as fast as I could because me and Cleveland Phil from Slack chat were going to do a challenge and both got lazy and it never happened. Um, I ran like an 815 and I was like, dad, and I was like, holy crap, like that is so much worse. Um, it's definitely depressing and it's hard to like get started into training and stuff again, just knowing where you used to be and where you are now. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that never becomes the case with DFS, hopefully on the, <laughs> on the upswing and improving because, uh, that would be, that would be another frustrating thing. Cause then that's just a mental exercise. It's one you expect the, uh, the physical stuff to go with time, but you hope you can keep the mental edge and sharpness at oh. least till you hit the forties and fifties. Well, speaking of mental stuff, I'm, I'm a head case on the golf course, Drewby. So you're going to have to like, keep me. Keegan keep Bradley. Me. Or are you like, uh, are you like uh speeth and you're going to be whining all the time? No, no, I don't want, I mean, I get mad at myself. I don't blame like external forces. I just, when I get over the ball, man, something changes. I mean, I know it's like this for everybody. There's that natural anxiety when you get over the ball, but like, I'm, you, you gotta keep me, keep that backswing nice and slow for me. I think I go fast without trying to go fast. And like, it's, I, I, things can go south quickly for me. I guess I should say like, I've got plenty of good shots in my bag. I just, uh, haven't found a way to eliminate the bad ones or, you know, get out of those ruts for a few holes, but it'll be fun. I know all of you out there are listening just to get updates on the daily roto scramble. So hit us up in the Slack chat about DFS golf and you can make fun of our potential DR scramble. Well, not potential. It's definitely happening, but we'll get you the yeah, results we'll of those. Over, we'll set, we'll be setting over unders for the scores and the yes. score in, in Slack. That'll be fun. Absolutely. Again, if you enjoyed the show, please rate review us on iTunes. You can also find us on Audio Boom. Thanks to the Fantasy Sports Network, DailyRoto.com for sponsoring Going for the Green. And we'll see you next week for the U.S. Open. Good luck this week, everybody. Yeah.